How's everybody doing? Good. Good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, where we're still kind of making our, our trek through chapter 1. There's a lot here. There's a lot of content here, so we're going to continue on there, and we're going to be focusing all of our attention on verses 39 through 45 this morning. So this is Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. Now, we need, to, we need to talk a little bit. I need to tell you something. This passage today feels a lot like November. In the sense that Christmas is kind of like oozing out of it, but we're not, re- yet, not yet ready to celebrate Advent, and we're not yet ready to go in that direction. So this sermon this morning, when you look at it, there's a lot of Advent there. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of Christmas joy, a lot of Christmas spirit. But instead of looking at that, I want you to think of it kind of like November. Like Christmas is coming, but it's not quite here yet. So we're going to focus in on some different dynamics and different elements of this passage, which I'm very excited about. Because what we discover in this kind of what we would find as a normal Advent story, we actually find these dynamics these three dynamics of a gospel, of a Christ-centered community. Because each of us has life seasons that are overwhelming, right? Is there an amen to that, right? Amen. There are life seasons, there are moments that seem confusing. And I think a description that we're going to find in our passage this morning is there's just kind of a heavy that we can kind of feel sometimes. But even in the good things, the bad things, the heavy things, the overwhelming things, a Christ-centered community is where the overwhelmed can come, be refreshed, and where joy can be kind of this leading experience and this response that we can put forward. And so these are the dynamics that we're going to dive into and explore today. So would you pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask for your grace to open our eyes, to open our ears, to move our hearts towards Jesus. God, we thank you for being a God who loves us, who continually demonstrates your mercy through different areas of our lives. But God, we come before you acknowledging that there are moments in our lives, perhaps even now, where the future feels unknown and the future feels kind of scary. And there's a sense of overwhelm that accompanies it. But God, I pray that you would show us the ways that joy and the action of rejoicing Help us to overcome that type of overwhelming unknown so that we may lean into your grace. We may, most of all, lean into Jesus. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So our story picks up, if you've been walking with us so far in our, in our Gospel of Luke, our story picks up in Mary's um, response to how this angel just spoke to her. So we had this dramatic moment that happened 
just last week in this story where Gabriel comes down, he visits Mary, and he tells her that she's going to be bearing the Messiah. Big deal. A big deal. And she sees this angel, and she sees that God is going to be with her, that God's going to be providing for her. But nevertheless, this has never happened in history before in this kind of way. There's a lot of overwhelming natures to this. So what is her response? And so what we're going to find in verses 39 through 40. So let me draw your attention to that, those opening two lines where we read this. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Now, where I want to focus our attention on is those, that little phrase. She hurried, or she set out and hurried to a town. Let's just pause there. Because we get this strong sense of Mary's instincts in these opening verses. Because receiving this news, she's got some decisions to make. She could stay in the town during her first trimester of pregnancy. And she could just kind of work out the social stigmas and that pr what pregnancy kind of provides to someone who's unmarried in her time. Especially as from her age, as a teenager, there's going to be things, there's going to be social stigmas around her that she's going to experience, right? And she's also going to have to try to work out some type of explanation to Joseph, who she's engaged with. So all of this stuff is going in her head. And for anyone, especially a young teenager, her haste, her hurriedness, her, her willing, wanting to get out and go to a different place is likely from just the simple desire of something I think we can all relate with. It's from the simple desire to be in the company of people who would believe you. Just from the simple the simple dynamic of, the simple desire to be sheltered from those who would accuse a promiscuous lifestyle, one that she didn't partake in, but just desi to desire to be in community and in company with people who would believe her. She needed a community of support through her heavy circumstance. And like we just kind of described, like I've just been talking about, it's weighty. It's not bad. It's weighty. There's a lot of good news to come, but there's going to be a lot of pain and discomfort and a lot of uncomfortable things before that's going to happen. So it's weighty. She's now with child, not at all in the ordinary sense, but in the extraordinary sense. Life had never started like this in history. And I want us to, to remember that, that life had never started like this in history. But this is the same angel who spoke to her relative. So if there's anyone who should believe her, it's likely going to be them. It's the only two who experienced this miraculous birth and this supernatural visit. So... What I want to start us off with is to recognize that there will come a time in every believer's life when God's guidance seems unknown and overwhelming. When God's guidance seems unknown and overwhelming. And it's going to look different for each of us. 
It may be a poor circumstance. It may be a good circumstance. It may be positive. It may be something pressing in that God is kind of confronting us with. It may be a good thing, but nevertheless, it's likely going to feel heavy. And with that heaviness can come a sense of being overwhelmed. It also might be this the radical new lifestyle of a new believer, embracing the uncertainty of a social acceptance that's happened for the first time. It may be even a seasoned disciple who's walking toward an unknown future, uncertain of the outcome. Because that's many, that's, that's the dynamic of a lot of us as we are living our lives as faithful believers, and then all of a sudden something happens. And when that something happens... There's an overwhelming unknown of how God is going to help me in the future. I trust that he's going to. I trust in him. But nevertheless, I'm kind of faced with an, a circumstance that I am, I've not yet experienced or I'm not aware, yet aware of. And that's where we need to recognize that walking in faith doesn't guarantee a predictable outcome. Walking in faith doesn't guarantee a predictable outcome. But there's, there's a, a silver lining, if you will, and that is friends. That's where friends come in. There was once a time when I was deciding to move into and join a missionary training school when I was younger, in that out of the process of discernment, um, I've never, I had never experienced yet in my life a season of, of a decision of that kind of magnitude before. God had not yet moved in me to where he physically was going to move me to a new place. Right? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about is that there's a difference of, you know, you're saved you're going to church, you're being with your friends, you're joining in the discipleship, you're experiencing all the beauty of God's gospel reflected in the local church, and then all of a sudden, he does something totally different that really surprises you, and you're not really sure how to accept it. Not really sure what's going to happen. So that was me, trying to figure out, feeling the weight of the call, moving to join this missionary training school where I would go to a, some other country that I hadn't yet known yet, and it was just weighty. And it was the first time in my life that my faith came first. And I was overwhelmed in that. Meaning that I was going to act in response to what God was going to do in my life that was completely new. My faith was coming first in the decisions that I was making. Um, in his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis, he describes this type of moment, this kind of scary overwhelmed nature so well better than I can so I want to read it for you and he says it's this he describes it this way it's always a shock to meet life where we thought we were alone and the very point which so many draw, draw back and proceed no further with Christianity like I'll take an impersonal God well and good a subjective God of beauty truth and goodness inside our own heads Better still. A formless life, a force surging through us, a vast power we can tap 
best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in faith suddenly draw back, supposing we had really found him. We never quite meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he had found us. There's a moment in time when faith will move into something, into an action that you cannot predict, but you have to move in it anyway. So in all of my overwhelm, I'm there, I'm ready to do this, but I'm not quite ready to do this, so I need someone to talk to. So I go to my church service, and I see my friend Molly, and I, I think people have said that I tend to wear my emotions on my sleeve. I do not know this. I cannot confirm nor deny this. Um, but I came in, and it was kind of one of those things where I was obviously bothered by something. And I remember Molly, my friend, asking if, hey, do you want to talk about it? And the th I don't remember how our conversation went. All I remember is that we never made it into the church building. Instead, she walked with me over a dozen times around the church building, hearing me out and hearing me talk about the things that were on my heart, that were weighty, that were heavy. They were, yes, they were kind of good things, but I had no idea if they were good things yet. And the reason why she was one who would walk with me is because she too had been to that school and she too had sensed the same feeling of overwhelm, the same step of faith that I was going to go through. The same type of feeling and I can only define that moment of walking with a friend who was with me as refreshing. It wasn't relieving in the sense that I was sharing a burden or I was sharing something within me. It was refreshing in the sense that I came to the point where I remembered I was not alone. There are other people who have gone through the same things that I am going through right now. She knew the same feeling and it was refreshing to my overwhelmed state of life. So when we look at Mary, what does Mary, or what, do, what does a Christian need when confronted with the movements of a very real, very active God and walking in obedience to him? A friend who knows the feeling. It's that simple sometimes. A friend who knows the feeling. God has a way of drawing his faithful together to create a community to share these kind of weighty moments together so we don't lose sight of the one who is doing the moving. Isn't it so easy to get caught up in everything, get caught up in all of the details that you forget about the God who's sending you there in the first place? have someone share in the dramatic, the life-changing steps of faith that we are called to in this life, it's refreshing. It is refreshing. 
And it goes two ways, too. It's not just for that one person to be encouraged and to see grace move. It's also refreshing to see someone walking in obedience to faith. We need that, too. If we get the privilege of being the friend who someone comes to, it's an encouragement to our faith and challenges and perhaps even convicts us that maybe we weren't living in a complete obedience, but that we're living in all the details. But in this case, there's even more going on at play than just Mary's refuge, right? It's one pastor, he put it this way, that these two, these two are becoming innocent co-conspirers, soul sisters in the divine plot to save the lost. I really like that. The soul sisters in the divine plot to save the lost. Which they would. They'd share their hearts as few humans ever have before. Through their birthing pain. Through their sweat. Through their blood. And through their mothering. The world would receive its greatest blessing. Which leads us then to the response of a a Christ-centered community, if a Christ-centered community is one that overwhelmed people, uh, overwhelmed believers find refreshment in, a Christ-centered community leads with a response of joy. So let me draw your attention. Let's keep this story going. In verses 41 through 42, where we kind of see this in action. Verses 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. So let's pause there. Because we would miss the big point of this text if we didn't ask why Elizabeth's baby acted in this kind of way. And this response of John, John, what will be John the Baptist, or who is John the Baptist, in utero is the witness of his purpose. You see, right here, in this moment, John just shared his first prophecy. Three months before his birth. Elizabeth is indeed carrying a prophet, and for moms out there, who have felt these kind of internal kicks or these kind of, um, you know, babies kicking, this is a whole different type of category of a description. It's the kind of one that they describe. It describes not as a baby. They even move the passage. Luke moves beyond like what a, a calm, gentle little baby kick or a flutter would feel like. He's like describing the same language he was as a sheep leaping with joy. So there's probably some uncomfortable feelings going on, right? But it's one that's going to capture a mother's attention, for sure. This type of, like, little lamb jumping inside of the stomach. That's, that's the kind of, that's the description that we have here. But John's prophetic leap is prophetic in that it fulfills, that it would be fulfilled years later when John would share his purpose to his followers in John 3. John the Baptist has God's herald, he would say in John chapter 3, verses 29. It says, he who has the bride is the groom. 
but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. And then he goes on to say, and he must increase and I must decrease. There's already a movement of prophetic action happening within Elizabeth's stomach. John the Baptist in utero already responding to the joy that he has in the coming Christ. In the presence of the coming Christ. So I think what I'd like to do is just unpack three principles of joy worth considering. Kind of coming from the standpoint of Elizabeth's reaction. We have, we have one, the first principle is this, that the joy is irresistible when it's led by the Holy Spirit. Joy that comes from the Lord is the response of the believer of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 25 verse 9, he says, look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his celebration, and in his salvation, excuse me. There is an irresistible nature to joy that only the Holy Spirit provides. And when believers experience it, I would argue that the scriptures show us that the only response is joy. When we find God moving in this kind of way, moving miraculously, moving supernaturally, joy is what propels us forward. But the second is joy is contagious. It is caught. It is infectious. It's like a yawn, but in a good way. Joy fills the hearts of believers. Joy is expanded in Elizabeth's soul as the Spirit seized her and caught her to cry out, blessed are you among women and your child will be blessed. So think about that dynamic going on. Mary comes into the room. Joy, the Holy Spirit, fills John's heart with joy he leaps, causing Elizabeth to experience the irresistible, infectious nature of joy. Then it's contagious to her, so she catches it. And then she exclaims out in a joyful cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. There's this kind of contagious nature to joy that is found when the Holy Spirit is moving in the lives of the believers. The only worthy response of a prophetic double blessing is joy elevating in Mary's heart. Verse, I love Psalm 34, verse 8. We've heard this so many times. But it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who, take re who takes refuge in him. Joy is irresistible when the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives. And joy is contagious in that we can share with others. It spreads 
to others. But third, joy, like love, dispels envy. So what do I mean by that? Dispels envy. I want you guys to remember that who Elizabeth is. Elizabeth is an elderly woman who's been barren her entire life. So at the arrival of her relative, who is now a very young woman, being pregnant, coming in, it is only human, human nature to respond in a sense of discouragement or a sense of envy. Envy could well up, but Elizabeth, in all of her conscious, deeply conscious struggles to, to conceive, her response is genuine joy at the sight of Mary. Like love, joy dispels envy because envy has no place in joy. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love does not envy. And we can add that the response to of joy does not allow envy to raise its head in our lives. A Christ-centered community responds to evidences of grace and movements of the Spirit with joy. That is our response. That is our reaction. But a Christ-centered community is even more than that. So I want to flip it and kind of ask then, what would be our action? If joy is our reaction, what is then our action? If joy is our response to meeting someone who's put their faith first, but is subsequently overwhelmed and what God is doing in their lives, how do we act as a community? I think sometimes it's easier to not think about it, if we're honest. Sometimes I think it's easier to let things kind of ride out without proactively getting involved in the weeds of things. So what I want to do is I want to show what is an action, what is proactive about being a Christ-centered community. And it's, we find it in verses 43 through 45. So let's just see kind of how Elizabeth rejoices in truth. It reads this. How could this happen to me? Verse 43. How could this happen to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. The Holy Spirit moves this infectious joy from her unborn son to herself, to the response, to then rejoice in the truth of the good news. Because of the Holy Spirit, she has a joyful reaction, a response that has been given to her. And now she is going to actively rejoice in the truth that is set before her. And not only that, it's also just this affirmation of Mary's obedience. 
This is the first person that Mary has talked to since she's found out all of this news. With all of us, the first response of someone of sharing some news like this kind of can, you know, either rattle you or kind of affirm what's going on. It's like sharing a baby name for the first time. You know what I mean? You're ready to share the baby name and you're kind of nervous and then you share it. Has anyone ever had that moment where you share it and the person's response, you're like, that's not a good name. I got to restart. For example, I'll tell you my story. Uh, when I told my mother-in-law, we were kind of playing out names. I can now see that there could have been better names. But first, I wanted to name Gabriel Moses because I thought it'd be cool. None of you are laughing. You're taking that all too seriously. <laughs> uh, because I wanted to nickname him Mo, and I thought that'd be cool. When I pitched that idea to my mother-in-law, it was not received in the same way that I thought it could be received. And she was like, you know, she kind of gave that look of, this won't work. <laughs> so anyway, I kind of had to throw that out. But reactions and responses are important to us. Anyway, and it was probably good then, because Gabe's name is Gabriel. And, and he's not even a Moses, you know. Maybe one day, I don't know. Um, anyway, reactions are important. And, and Elizabeth's response to Mary was vital. And I don't think it's any coincidence that God would place her and bring her into a place of encouragement where the response was going to be fully felt because it's the Holy Spirit, because God is actively involved. So joy was the response that had happened. But Elizabeth, responding in joy of this good news of coming, of, of her Lord coming and Mary's walk of faith in this situation is joyful and refreshes the overwhelmed. But I, I do love Mary's or Elizabeth's action here, which is to rejoice in a moment even when she's the only person in the room doing so. Mary's worship is going to come soon. But for now... The only one who's responding out, outwardly is Elizabeth. And I think on multiple occasions, I think there's something that we can learn from that. On, on multiple occasions, I've seen gathered believers, gathered disciples, enjoying each other's company until it was time to talk about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, everything in the room goes quiet. Everyone gets a little too stoic. Everyone becomes a little too serious. There was once I was at this um, men's fellowship thing uh, years ago. At, and my friend brought me along to it. And it was his church that he was a part of. I got to come and there was just this big kind of men's fellowship party. And everybody's out. Everyone's laughing. There's music playing. There's lawn games happening. Everybody's playing with lawn games and stuff. And then, um, and I met the host who was a really nice guy. And then all of a sudden, the music turns off and the, the host, the guy, he's like, all right, guys, everybody sit down with a stern expression on his face. Now we're going to talk about the Jesus that we came to worship tonight. We are going to repent of our sins and we are going to love him. 
sit down, you know, and it was like this tough guy thing. And I said, whoa, something changed. I thought, fellowship no more. Now I need to be uncomfortable. And sometimes we kind of, that was, a, and he was a very dramatic experience of what I've, I've seen sometimes with people, is that we've, we enjoy being in fellowship together, but then we have to immediately turn on this, the stoic face or switch on the thing when we have to talk about Jesus because there's serious elements to it. And our faith is serious. There is a serious joy to it, which is viable. But there's also a sense that sometimes we take ourselves too seriously. One, like this guy, one commentator, he wrote on a couple who because they had never read in any portion of Scripture Jesus smiling, they believed that they should not smile. Ought not to smile. But take things, take their faith very seriously. So they were a couple who didn't smile. Commentator wrote, it's kind of weird. It's kind of a weird thing. But on the other side, so we have that that we need to stay away from. But we also have something else that we need to stay away from, and this is artificial joy. This is artificial joy. This is superficial joy. It's fake. It's kind of plasticky joy. I experienced this one time when, I w when Amy and I, when we were in Oklahoma, and we went to her grandmother's church. And we went there, and it was kind of a smaller, smaller congregation. And we get there, and when we get into our seats, we're noticing in all of the pews that there are little, uh, there are little cards, like little Hallmark cards, like on each seat. That's a lot of effort. So I was like, what does this card say? I've never been here before. And I sit here, and I, un, you know, I take it out of, out of the thing, and it's, uh, and it's got like that painted butterfly, the pastel blood butterfly, you know, on it. And inside, it just said one caption, isn't life beautiful? And I looked around and I said, I don't want any part of this. I don't know what's going on with me. It might be my uh, cynical nature, but no, I do not feel like that right now. <laughs> I came to worship. I need Jesus to help me in my heart. But I do not feel like life is beautiful. And also, who, who wrote this, you know? And then I'm just getting upset in my head over some, a nice gesture that someone made. But what it does point to is that it is, it was artificial. It was an artificial joy. It was like that card represented the same type of clear vinyl that covered the church pews. Like, it's a good idea. I get it. But it's also very uncomfortable and very stale and clean, too clean, too polished. Sometimes you got to pull off that, that clear vinyl. You got to sit on the cotton. You got to let some stuff get stained, right? The seats can be a good reflection of us in that kind of way. But there's a great power to genuine joy that the Holy Spirit offers believers. It doesn't have to be stern type of joy. It doesn't have to be that kind of all too serious joy, but it also doesn't, shouldn't be the artificial joy. It shouldn't be the superficial plasticky joy. 
God offers us something totally unique and beautiful that we find in the gospel. And it's a joy that is beautiful and multidimensional in its nature. Because joy is not just pure happiness like we think of it to sometimes be. Joy is happiness and sadness, is pain and beauty, carrying us in a mixture of both towards something deeper and deeper, deeply meaningful. I think there's that story, or that, that uh, there's a Disney movie, Inside Out, that I think reflects this really well. Uh, I don't normally find my, a lot of good examples from Disney movies, especially right now. We're trying to teach our kids that, like, not every Disney princess character has dead parents. That's a big thing that we're trying to talk about right now. Our kids, uh, all they do whenever they play, they're like, especially Tavia, she always says something like this, I'm a, D I'm a Disney princess, and I'm going to go off, and I'm, she tells the story, and she's like, but I'm all alone because my parents are dead. I was like, that's very alarming, <laughs> right? But there's one moment where I think Disney got it right. In this moment, there's this scene where all of these emotions, joy, anger, all these different things, are kind of looking out, they're characters, and they're looking out at these different kind of carnivals that are built up of their own emotions. And there's the happiness carnival, and it's kind of moving and happening. But then all of a sudden, at the end of the movie, that breaks down. And the character who's going through all these carnival things in her head, the only one that's up is like sadness. But then from that, there's the happiness and sadness, and they kind of come together and they make joy. And I actually agree with that kind of visual statement. That joy is the mixture of sadness and happiness coming together. It's pain and it's beauty. It's heartbreak and it's healing coming together. And it moves us forward. And when we experience that in other people's lives, and we get to share our thoughts with people, and we get to express how different moments are happening, when that is their response, we know it's coming from the place of the Holy Spirit. Because God is able to redeem and restore all of our past memories, all of our past hurts, all of our past pains or discomforts, and bring them into a place of peace where joy is the response. And we're able then to move in faith together. We're able to walk in the unknown together. And all of the past is with us. And our action is to rejoice in the truth of what God has done. Amen? To rejoice in the truth of what God has done. It's multidimensional, but you know what it does? It reflects, that kind of joy reflects Jesus. Because let's consider Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2. And we're going to begin, I'm going to start us off in verse 1 where the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Verse two, keeping our eyes on Jesus, 
the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Friends, Jesus was a joyous person whose sinless human personality radiated joy, not in a stoic, stern way, and not in an artificial, super way, but in a pure, perfect way. He was love incarnate, and people felt it. Jesus cared for his disciples, and his disciples knew it. His presence evoked a sense of security and well-being. But Jesus was, and Jesus was also holy. And to be in the presence of a perfect, transcendent, pure purity made his followers aware of their sin, yet baffled to experience grace instead of judgment. So what is then the response that we find after the disciples have experienced this, the response is joy in grace being given to those who deserve sin and death because Jesus has taken it on. Joy in the experience of receiving grace and exper experiencing love instead of this judgment. And yet, it was all because this same Jesus, who he endured the absence of all joy so that we would never have to. Jesus endured the absence of all joy. Jesus is the one who felt the full weight of his circumstance in the cross and in his absence from the Father. And think about it maybe this way. In all of, when Jesus was absent from the presence of the Father, when he was going on dying on the cross, there was a state of overwhelm within him as, as he's being tortured and as he's walking to the cross. And he had no one to cling to. He had no one to help him and to be refreshed. But his death on the cross was for our joy because there's a resurrection. And in that resurrection brought forth an eternal beauty from pain, an eternal goodness from brokenness, where sin is met with forgiveness. His death on the cross was for our joy, his glory, and for the church's good. We rejoice then in that. So then the question that I have, and the question I'd like to address is, how then can we be a Christ-centered community, a community that recognizes when someone needs to share the feeling that maybe we once had, 
or someone is something miraculous is happening in their life and we want that response to be joy. So here's a few takeaways of how we can be a a community centered on Christ. First, is that we can be the presence of refreshment. So whether it be your missional community, whether it be your DNA group, whether it be a a different type of uh, BSF, a small group, something to that element, that you're with other disciples, be the presence of refreshment where overwhelmed friends can come and just be. Sometimes it feels a little intimidating when we think that we have to have all of the answers, but there's great power in just listening, right? There's great power in being a, a friend who will listen. I have a friend of mine who, who a lot of the times, we don't know what to say to the other person, so we just listen through the thoughts that they share. But in the company of someone, maybe there's a season where someone's a little further along than you, you can be a refreshment to them. You can refresh their overwhelm in a way that provides peace, that provides goodness and beauty. Community helps carry our heavy burdens. Community helps carry our heavy burdens because that's the place where we find others who have felt the same as us. But here's a second is, Don't feel guilty to respond in joy. Don't feel guilty to respond in joy. Don't be afraid to approach life as it is and as it's happening. But in that moment, I want to encourage you that there's more to life than feeling the weight of your sin all the time because you need to remember the forgiveness that comes from that. But also, not ignoring things, walking together. I think as we walk together, the Holy Spirit gives us the full response of joy that we need. And lastly is this, rejoice in the truth that Jesus is making you more like himself each day. Which is a holiness that produces the fruit of the Spirit. What are those fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are ours to have in Christ because Christ was the one who walked out alone, who was absent from the Father, who had no one to accompany him, who died the loneliest death in history, but then rose again. And in that forgiveness, gives his believers, gives us, his church, his bride, the joy that we need to move forward in our faith. So when things feel overwhelming and your outcome is not predictable, and it seems really hard to walk in faith right now, Remember the God who brings you, who takes pain, who takes difficulty, who takes challenges and makes them into a joyful experience because you're with him. You will never be alone because Jesus 
was alone for you. You can walk in and rejoice in that truth. And church, I'm praying that we are the active, that we are the active examples of joy in this city. Seattle is one of the most anxious cities, if not the most anxious city in the entire country. It is oozing with anxiety and difficulty and challenge and cynicism and difficulties. And what our city needs as a witness is to see a community of people living on mission together to display the realities of life in Christ and the realities of life in the Holy Spirit, walking in the newness of life, which is where God takes all of our past things and moves them forward so that we may rejoice in faith of a future grace that's coming before us. Christ is ours, and there is a joy to behold in him when we're together living in a Christ-centered community. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that you would stir within us joy. Let it be our response through the movements of grace. God, sometimes it's hard to look beyond overwhelming circumstances and it's difficult to, to look towards the future without insecurity. But God, I pray that you would show us the deep peace that you provide us through your spirit, reminding us that we are never alone, but there are, we were always within your presence and you are the one who brings us to others so we can remember that we are not alone, that others have come before us, others have felt the same way, and that we would respond together in the joy that you provide and in the truth of the good news. We love you so much.